Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the last of Micha's lectures on Moses and the book of Deuteronomy. Um, all I can say, you'll see this for yourself, Micha here is a full maestro in full bloom and in full control of his prodigious abilities. What he says about Moses and biblical Israel and the Jewish people in the 20th and 21st century is just so profound. It's a beautiful lecture, a brilliant lecture. We're looking forward to sharing it with you, to discussing it amongst ourselves afterwards. Enjoy the ultimate lecture about Moses' ultimate speech. The most righteous king we've ever had was King Yoshiel. He's the only king that the text says that worshiped God with all his heart and all his soul. Bechol levavcha, bechol nafshecha, bechol modecha. And one of the most important things that he did is that he resurrected Pesach, Passover. He resurrected Pesach. This is how the book of Divrei Yamim describes the Pesach that he created. Vayarem Yoshiau livnei kol livnei ha'am tzorn kvasim bnei izim ha'kol epsachim dechol ha'nintza lemispar shloshim elef uvakar vashloshim elef ele berechush ha'melech. I won't go into detail, but the details are saying something. There was a massive celebration, a massive celebration in Jerusalem of collective Pesach. Now this king that resurrected the Pesach, Chag Yetziat Mitzrayim, was the king that went to war with Mitzrayim. And I would like to ask, is it a coincidence <laughs> that the king that resurrected Exodus, escaping Egypt, was the king that took Yehuda, that took the Hebrews to war with Egypt? And I don't think it's a coincidence. But I want to try to enjoy this coincidence, to enjoy this tension a little bit more. Because as we know, and as we've established in our last lecture, there was a big price to pay for going to war with Egypt. And the price was, we went to war with Egypt, not only did Yoshiau die, but the Egyptians then punished Yehuda for going to war. And they appointed an Egyptian governor. It was actually one of the sons of Yoshiau. They changed his name. They call him Yehoiakim, and now he's the Egyptian representative. Now, Yehuda has lost its independence. Now, it's under the control of Egypt. So let's think about this just a little bit more. We're back in Egypt. We're back under Egyptian control. We're not back in Egypt because they returned geographically to Egypt. We're back in Egypt because Egypt came to Yehuda. Egypt came to us. So, I find it kind of weird that the king that resurrected the, the celebration of escaping Egypt is the king that brought us back to Egyptian sovereignty. Now let's ask it again. Is it a coincidence that the king that resurrected the notion that we are liberated from Egypt is the king that because of him we lost our liberty to Egypt? So I don't think this is a coincidence. I don't think this is a coincidence. And we have to think, okay, so what's the connection here? What's the connection here? One way to think about it is that after creating a Pesach, Passover, now there's a very strong anti-Egyptian national fever. We beat Egypt back then, we could beat Egypt, we could defeat Egypt again. That's one way, like a nationalistic reading. But I think the better reading is a religious reading. It's not a mistake because of ultra-nationalism. It's a mistake because of false religious awareness. 
because what happens to you when you practice Passover, when you practice Pesach, when you celebrate Exodus? You get reminded of those great miracles that happened all those years ago. Now, I want to just remind ourselves of those miracles. There's many miracles, but probably the most dramatic miracle that captures what the story could do to its listeners is Kriyat Yamsuf. It's a moment where they tear apart the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 14, verse 10. Pharaoh was getting close. Where is he getting, getting close to? The people of Israel escaped Egypt. They're in front of the water, the Red Sea. And then for some reason, the Egyptians changed their minds. And the Egyptians that let the people go decide to chase those people. They changed, they changed their mind. And now they're getting close to the people of Israel. The people of Israel in front of them is the water, they look back and they see Egypt. So now they're terrified. And they start yelling and praying to God. Are there is no, are there no other graves or graveyards in Egypt that you took us to? It's like they use sense of humor when they're complaining. Yes, <laughs> that you took us to die in the desert is a very cynical remark. Why did you take us out of Egypt? Every time things are hard and tough, they will want to they'll regret they left Egypt and they'll want to return to Egypt. Here's the first moment. We told you when we were in Egypt, leave us alone. And we'll, we'll be slaves of Egypt. Now they are quoting themselves. <laughs> Meaning, you know how people in the middle of an argument, they quote what they said in the last argument? Well, that is exactly what they're doing to Moshe. Back in Egypt, we told them, you told them, leave us alone, don't take us out. And now we're repeating that. Why didn't you leave us alone? Why didn't you take us out? I can understand them. I think we could all understand them. They're in despair. They're in a situation where there's no hope. They're in an impossible situation. The water is in front of them, the Egyptians are in back of them, and it seems like there is no way out. And of course, the moral of the story is, there is always a way out. Even when it seems like it's an impossible situation, it's still a possible, the impossible could still happen. And so what does Moshe say to them? Don't be afraid. Just stand and observe and watch. Just watch the drama. You're observers of the drama. Not participating of the drama. Not leading the drama. Just observing. Just watching. Something big is going to happen and you have to be passive and watch. God will fight for you and instead of you. And you'll just watch and enjoy. Enjoy the party. Something big is going to happen. So I have a question. If this is the memory of Pesach, that these great things happen, where God is active and you are passive. God controls history and all you do, need to do is to believe. To believe that even when it seems like there are no options, there's still an option, there's miracles, the impossible is always possible. That's the message of Pesach. I don't think it's a coincidence that after you learn that great message of Pesach, that the impossible is possible and God can do anything, then they go to war with Egypt. It seems like they expect that the miracles that happened in the past will happen again. They go to war with Egypt because when, you, when you're guided by theology, when you do politics, by, by this version of theology, that you expect God, because you're devoted to God, to be in your pocket, to be in your side, 
So you expect, yes, the Pesach we just celebrated is not only our past, maybe it's our future. And you go to war with Egypt. Because, yes, from a secular, skeptic point of view, you're weak, Egypt is powerful. But from a religious point of view, God is with you, and God is more powerful than Egypt. That's the real strategic equation of history. And let's trust that strategic equation. You go to war with Egypt, and you lose. Because reality kicks in. And now you're back in Egypt. Now this is... A ver- this could be an argument for not celebrating Pesach. This could be an argument for how Pesach and celebrating Pesach and remembering the great memories of the great miracles could create irrational politics. It create an expectation that the miracles will come back and that expectation could create very wrong decisions. So let's not celebrate Pesach. Shabbat Shalom. <laughs> what I just presented is Yoshiyahu, Josiah's understanding of religion and of Yitziat Mitzrayim and of this narrative. What I'd like to argue is that's not, that's not the only way we can understand Exodus. That's not the only model, the, the only way that the memory of those great miracles could shape a national awareness. There is a different way that those memories could shape a national awareness. And I want to now to present an alternative to Josiah. This is the alternative presented by Moshe in his final speech. How does Moshe understand Exodus and how, what is Exodus supposed to do to our national awareness? It's supposed to make us arrogant, expect that miracles are supposed to happen and therefore we can attack anyone and do anything that we want. Is that what Exodus is supposed to create? Or maybe it could create a different kind of an awareness. And this is, I think, how Moshe understands the impact of Exodus. So again, we're back to the basic work of Dvarim, the basic work of Deuteronomy as the fifth book of, book of the Torah, but also the first interpretation of the Torah. And as an interpretation of the Torah, I want to follow the interpretation of Moshe to some of the commandments. And the first commandment I want to listen, the first mitzvah I want to listen to the way Moshe interprets is Eved Ivri. Where does the mitzvah of a Hebrew slave, where is it? Where do we find it for the first time? In Exodus. In Exodus, in Parashat Mishpatim. And it's presented in a way that this is the first mitzvah that they hear, they hear when Moses comes down from the mountain. It's the first mitzvah after he comes down from the mountain, after the Ten Commandments. So we have in Parashat Yitro, the Ten Commandments. Then in Parashat Mishvatim, a whole new set of mitzvahs, and the first mitzvah is Evedivri. What's the mitzvah? If you have a slave... The slave could work for you for seven years, actually for six years. But what happens in the seventh year? You have to liberate him. You have to let him go. He can't stay and be your slave. So that's the first mitzvah that's after the Ten Commandments. Just to remind people that forgot. The Ten Commandments weren't supposed to be the Ten Commandments. They were supposed to be the 613 Commandments. God says the Ten Commandments, and the people ask God to stop. They couldn't take it anymore. They were terrified. And God stops the collective revelation of speaking directly to the people. And He starts the uh, revelation where He speaks to Moshe, and Moshe speaks to the people. So that idea that it's it's an indirect revelation was the will of the people. There was the Ten Commandments of direct revelation. And then, Evadivri is the first mitzvah of indirect revelation through Moshe. Now I want to ask a question. Is there a connection between the first commandment and the first mitzvah? Let's examine this. What is the first commandment? The first commandment is, Anochi Adonai Eloecha, I am the Lord your God. Asher the first commandment is an introduction. God is saying, I am the Lord your God, and I am the person that liberated you from slavery, from Egypt. That's that introduction. 
asking the people to notice that God is the being or the person that's in charge of their liberation from slavery, recognizing that is the first commandment. What is the first mitzvah? You need to liberate your slaves. You can't hold on to them. You can't control them. You have to let them free. I want to ask a, qu a question. Is there a connection between the first commandment and the first mitzvah? I feel like there is. Maybe, what Moshe is, what, maybe what's happening here is the first mitzvah is God liberated slaves. The first mitzvah is you need to liberate your slaves. Maybe the first mitzvah is a fulfillment of the first commandment. God is a liberator. God liberated you. You have to liberate others. Now, here's a question I always ask myself when I read Torah. Is this connection only in my mind? Or is it really there in the text? It's the fact the first commandment is God as a liberator and the first mitzvah asking us to be liberators. Is that just a coincidence? Or something's going on here we're asked to do to others what God did to us? Is it only in my mind or is it really in the text? It's hard to know, it's hard to tell because it doesn't say. But what I want to argue is that this interpretation is exactly the way Moshe interpreted this text. I want to see now how Moshe interpreted Evedivri. And to do that, I want to see how he repeats Evedivri. How does he repeat this mitzvah? And for that, we're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 12. By the way, he's adding something. What did he add here? He's adding the female slave. Also, she needs to be liberated. It wasn't clear in Exodus. There is an egalitarian motif in Deuteronomy. We find it here also. The seventh year, you should let him free, let him go. Don't let him free empty-handed. Just, you have to give him fruits, you have to give him what he needs in order to climatize to his new civilian life. And then it says, this whole thing was for this verse, for verse 15. This is the reason why you have to let him free. You were a slave in the land of Egypt. And God liberated you and that is why I am commanding that commandment today. The connection that I thought might have only been in my mind, I think is a, the exact connection that Moshe did in his mind. God liberated you, therefore you need to liberate others. When we let our slaves go, we're not only obeying God, we are also imitating God. With that idea and that concept in mind, I want to see how Moshe reinterprets another commandment. Shabbat. And for that, we have to go to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Now, this is something we've done in one of our last lectures. But I want to take, well, I want to take from this move something else, another motif and a different motif. In Deuteronomy 5, when, re when he repeats the Shabbat and therefore interprets the Shabbat, he says that the reason we need to observe Shabbat is The purpose of Shabbat is not to rest. It's to let your slaves rest. Yes, it's different than Exodus. In Exodus, and that's the part we say in Kiddush, it's about resting. In Deuteronomy, it's not about resting, it's about not controlling. That's the mitzvah in Deuteronomy. In the interpretation of Shabbat in Deuteronomy, Shabbat is about letting go. It's about not controlling. It's collapse of social hierarchy one day a week. It's the democratization of the privilege called rest. We, we rest, 
Your slave might not work like you work. There's a hierarchy of work, but there's not a hierarchy in rest. He rests just like you rest. That's one day that you can't boss him around. That's one day that you can't control him. By the way, you can't control your slaves. You can't control animals. You can't control anything. Shabbat is not a day of no work. That's Exodus. It's a day of no control. It's a day of letting go. And then, in verse 15... It says, why is Shabbat a day of not controlling your slaves? Letting your slaves free one day a week. It says, why? And it says, V'zacharta, Ki eved ha'ita And you shall remember that you used to be a slave in Egypt. And God liberated you. He let you free in that big drama. Al-ken Adonai Elohecha la'asot et yom Shabbat. God liberated you. You have to liberate your slaves every Shabbat. Again, emitatio dei. In Exodus, emitatio dei, imitating God, was God rests on Shabbat, you rest on Shabbat. The emitatio dei of Deuteronomy is God liberated slaves. You have to not control your slaves in Shabbat. What does it mean to be like God? What does it mean to try to be like God? Well, Nietzsche and others understand that there is a human fantasy to be in complete control. Some people call that control. Rav Cook calls that, control, that fantasy God envy. God is the ultimate power, ultimate control, and you want to be like God is your the fulfillment, your to fulfill your fantasy of control. What Moshe says, being like God is not controlling. Being like God is not controlling. It's letting go. It's giving up power. It's letting your slaves go. It's letting the people that work for you free. But I'd like to try to put this together. What is Exodus for Yoshiao and what is Exodus for Moshe. For Yoshiao, Exodus creates an expectation that we miracles happen to us, might happen again. Exodus is an expectation. The great things that happened in the past could happen again in the future. It's something that has to happen to me. For Moshe, Exodus is not about, it's not supposed to create an expectation for something great that's supposed to happen to us. Exodus is about who we need to become. Exodus is not about something that needs to happen to us. It's not about miracles. It's about responsibility. You were liberated. You need to be a liberator. What happens, you know, the Torah deals many times with memory of suffering. And part of the Torah is how do you transform memory of suffering into sensitivity. You were an immigrant, become sensitive toward, towards immigrants. You were a slave, become sensitive towards slaves. It's not easy to make that, that transformation. We know from modern psychology that people that suffer in the past could become cruel in the future. We know that people that were battered might become batterers when they're adults. We know that pain in the past doesn't have to lead to sensitivity. But the Torah guides you to transform memory of pain in the past to a character filled with sensitivity. The Torah is about how you deal with pain, but the Torah is also how do you deal not with bad memories, but with good memories. Not with pain, but with miracles that happened in the past. And also great things that happened to you could be bad for you. It could, you could become an entitled person. When adults and grown-ups were great to you and nice to you, you might think that that's what you expect the world to behave towards you when you're an adult. That's the Yoshiao model. Great miracles happened to us in the past. Well, they're going to happen again. We're entitled, and that's what we expect. Moshe understands that we need to transform great memories, good memories, into responsibility. If the Torah is about transforming memory of pain 
in, to sensitivity, it's about transforming memory of great things into responsibility. I was liberated, I need to become a liberator. Exodus is not about expectation for something that needs to happen to us. It's about who you need to become. Now you need to become a liberator. What does Exodus do? We, we learned the Yoshiyahu model and the Moshe model. Our past defines who we are in the present. But we can influence the way the past defines who we are in the present. That's what the last speech of Moshe is trying to do. I would like to start putting some thoughts together towards my last remarks. Moshe in the end didn't enter the land of Israel. Why didn't Moshe enter the land of Israel? Why didn't he? Because at that moment, that sin we've all learned and not always understand. I'm not sure I understand that sin. God told him to speak to the rock. And he didn't speak. He hit the rock. In some way, his sin was the sin of not talking, not speaking, not using language. Interestingly enough, 40 years beforehand, when God wanted to hire him for the job, to redeem Israel, to take Israel out of Egypt, to take him into Eretz Canaan, into the land of Israel, Moshe didn't want the job, and five times God offers it to him, and in different ways, Moshe has the same excuse. What does he say? I'm not a man of words. He says he's aral sfataim. He says he's kvad peh. He says, lo ish dvarim anochi. I don't know how to talk. Isn't it interesting that for the same reason that Moshe didn't want the job, for that reason, he lost the job. He didn't want this mission because he doesn't talk. He lost the mission because he didn't talk. But the irony only begins here. It doesn't end here because, okay, so he's not entering Israel because he didn't talk. And then he climbs a mountain and he doesn't stop talking. He delivers his entire speech. Sefer Dvarim. Ele hadvarim asher diber Moshe. Not bad for a person that is lo ish dvarim. Anochi. The man that is not a man of words, the entire book that he has in the Bible is the book of Dvarim. Words. But then you read this speech. And in the speech he says, listen, when you cross the Jordan Valley, here's one commandment. You go to this place that is between Har Grizim and Har Eival. And take this speech and carve it into a rock. Oh, and every seven years, another mitzvah, get together and read this speech out loud. Oh, and a third mitzvah, when you appoint a king, the king has to write down this speech himself and read it his entire life. It seems like part of the speech, Moshe is asking them to take this speech into the land of Israel. Moshe wants his last words to be his eternal words. I think, what is Moshe trying to do? I think he is trying to sneak into Israel. He is trying to enter Israel. He's saying, I'm not entering Israel. My words will enter Israel. So because he didn't speak, he's not entering Israel. But everything that he spoke, everything that he said, those words, they need to enter Israel. And what are those words? In the last eight lectures, we try to study those words, their meaning, and using other biblical books to understand in a deeper way the ideas that are in Dvarim, that are in his words. Moshe understood something big, that entering Israel is more than changing their location, it's changing their status. The movement into the Holy Land is also a movement into power. It's about a powerless people becoming powerful. That's what Deuteronomy is about. That's what the whole narrative is about. Powerless people becoming powerful. A nation of slaves conquering Canaan, building a successful monarchy, a powerless people becoming powerful. I think it's very interesting that that is the biblical narrative. And I want to notice 
that if anyone would try to describe the history of Jewish people in the 20th century in one line, I think they would say, it's a story about powerless people becoming powerful. The shocking resemblance between the grand biblical narrative and modern Jewish history means that the Bible could be alive today. Because the last speech of Moshe is at that moment right before they become powerful. And Moshe understands that when they become powerful, well, power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely, and power could change them. And he's afraid of that. You might have hubris and arrogance and a sense of entitlement and a sense, false sense of immunity. Power could change you. Power corrupt you. Could corrupt you. But here's what Moshe doesn't do. He doesn't say power is dangerous, so don't become powerful. That's not what he's saying. He's saying power is dangerous, become powerful. Just use it the right, the right way. Ever since Plato, there's something we know about power. Power could change you, but we need power. And here's a paradox of power. We need power to change the world. But once we have power, sometimes it's our world, our internal world, that changes. And here's the biggest question. How can we have power that will enable us to change the world without that power changing our own world? I think that is what Deuteronomy is about, or that's at least what it's also about. How does a nation become powerful and still sensitive? Powerful without hubris. Powerful, powerful enough to change the world without their world changing. And this was the journey we tried to do the last eight lectures, trying to see how, trying to create a religion that's not about power, not about control. Politics that's not about control. Politics that doesn't lead to tyranny. Those are the great challenges to the two revolutions of Moshe. The people that become powerful, how do they use power? How, how does their life not become a life that is obsessed with control. I'm not sure that the Hebrews at that time implemented the two revolutions of Moses. That vision and that challenge is still alive today. Thank you. Wow, well, let me begin just by canvassing my dear colleagues for your quick reactions to Micha's lecture. What did you think of it? And if you had to uh, distill or tell a friend about it in a single sentence, what would you say the takeaway was? What did you think of it and what did you think the takeaway was? Aliza. Uh, I felt like it was really powerful. I think uh, for me thinking about the power that empowers us rather than power that corrupts us was a really helpful framework. Um, and I really loved the way in which he drew parallels to the way that we, we actualize God's power by exercising sensitivity and by finding mitzvot that enable us to emulate God without being corrupted by God's having chosen us. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Dan, what did you think of the lecture and what did you take away from the lecture? Well, as usual, uh, brilliantly presented. Um, I was thinking of when he went back to the model of control and, and how that relates also to his last uh, segment about power um, and understanding that, um, that much of Moses' message, Moshe's message is trying to teach us how to relinquish control in order to find in order to find our true selves, and it, that relinquishing control is a way that, to find our true selves through our relationships. Um, and I think that that, that was, a, that was a, a brilliant move on his part. Also, just watching this lecture now, talking about power and, uh, and, and politics and, um, and on the eve of an election, and how significant our Torah is, something you know a uh, three thousand years old that that every nuanced word of the torah and especially in the book of devarim 
is something that each of us can use as a takeaway for this moment in time. Michelle, what did you think of the lecture and what did you take away from the lecture? Micha is once again brilliant and although I wished I could pause the tape and raise my hand and ask a question about several of the things that he asked, I was really glad that it carried on as it did and one of the most powerful pieces of it for me was the piece about the miracle that you want may not be the miracle that you need. And to me, in this time of COVID, that feels really important to hold on to. Mm. So this is, I've, I had watched the lecture a few times before just because I thought it was so uh, utterly brilliant, lustrously brilliant. Um, this time when I heard it, for the, the third time in a week, um, it made me realize that I need to add a new sin to the confessional. Um, this is Elul, and the holidays are in less than a month. And I think I need to add a sin to the confessional that comes from a teaching of Shai Held. Shai Held talks about the danger of taking beautiful texts and domesticating them. Like, they're their little doggy, or they're their little kitten. And you feel good that you have this little doggy in your house, and you feel good that you have this little kitten in your house. It's a nice domestic little pet, let me pet it, let me pet it, let me pet it, and now I can sleep at night. And Shai Held, in his book, The Heart of Torah, warns us about doing that. And I realize that I have committed the sin of domesticating our best text. And, and here's, here's my thought, and I just wanted to, uh, you know, he says that the re we, we don't want to be Yoshiyahu Jews. We don't want to be Josiah Jews who think that we're arrogant and God's going to weigh in and you know, we can go to war with China or Russia and God is going to help us like God helped Moses, that that's bad politics and crooked politics. And instead, the move is that we take the best values and carry them forward. And that we were vulnerable, therefore be kind to the vulnerable, etc. And we're watching this during, uh, as Dan mentions, a political season. And here's my question. If you take his, this lecture seriously, and if you take Moses' charge in Deuteronomy seriously, then doesn't this require Jews who take Torah seriously to be super engaged politically in supporting the rights of the vulnerable, the oppressed, the immigrants, the stranger, the widow, the orphan in our world? In other words, it's not enough to just say it's a really nice text, I just love those values and leave it at that, but isn't some activism required? And because I do a lot of talking and very little activism, it made me realize that that's my confession, one of my confessional sins. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Like, what, if, you, if you like this lecture, what do you now do? I guess is my question. So on that point, it just feels to me like, and we talked a little bit about this last, last week, that it's possible to read uh, Josiah as becoming obsessed with this narrative that God's going to come in and save the day. But I think it's also equally possible for him to read that, for it to be read that he's so obsessed with this past trauma that he has to write it in the present and the way that he writes it is wrong. Like he goes to war and that's not the right way to address that pain. So I think both we have to be active. We can't domesticate the text. We have to um, be clear that we have a deep obligation to protect the vulnerable. We also have to do that work of healing so that we're healing our past traumas, so we're not rushing into war with people that we don't need to be at war with, that we're not acting out of uh, impulse, that we're not acting out of our own pain, that we've done the healing and the work of resolving that past trauma that enables us to move forward in a thoughtful way to really emulate God's best qualities. So we're meeting the week that a police officer in Wisconsin shot an unarmed black man seven times in the back seven times in the back. And we only know about it because it happened to have been caught by video. How often does this happen? Should, if we take this text seriously, should we be jumping up and down just all the time? Like, what do you do with texts like this in a world like this? Well, it's, it's the world it's always been. And yeah, what, what, how do we, how do you find plateau, a place in your life where, yes, you need to jump up and down. Yes, you need to be a, a, an activist. 
but also trying to find a place where you can also, you know, uh, be able to put that aside a little bit. You can't just live, you know, because if we, if we were to take every incident, then we would not be able to, to live. It would just drive us all, you know, to the edge. And then also, he, you know, uh, when Mika was, talk was talking about that, br he brilliantly talked about people, you know, that, um, that um, if, they, if they're battered at, when they're young, you know, become, can become batterers as, as opposed to that. So, the, so what Elisa was saying is that the idea that, that we have to learn to um, ameliorate and carefully w think about our actions so that we're not just jumping up and down, but we're actually accomplishing something. And how do we, uh, and then finding the steps to actually, you know, find one thing. Uh, Rabbi Chile used to teach if you find one thing to do, then that's the, um, that's what you should do to try to, you know, to, to, to make the world a better place, tikkun olam, by finding the, 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 one, the, one, uh, the one action, the one thing to be involved in. Because again, if we, if we all of us, if we all of us um, didn't have one thing to do, if we, if we were able to do everything, then we wouldn't be able to do anything. So I'm struck by the tension between your question and Dan, your answer. And one of the interesting things that Micha spoke about was the role of God in being that place and space where, you know, we think that God is going to enable us to control the world, right? With God, I'll be able to go out with my armies and I'll, you know, be able to be the conqueror. I'll be able to solve all the problems in, in your language, Dan. But that there is this, this really powerful sense of humility that Micha brought into this conversation that with God, I actually realized that I don't have control. And yet that doesn't mean that I stop jumping up and down. So there, there, is a, there is a place and a space that, in a sense, I turn to God for the strength. And I'm really struck by this end. And I, I swear I wanted to raise my hand and ask him more about it. What would you have asked him? He, he spoke about Moses and how Moses, who's not the man of words, ends the whole book, right? It's too late. He can't get into the land. And like, he's suddenly spurting words just to try to get in. And my question for him would be, you know, was that too late? Should, should Moses have been doing the words, giving the words, more active, more engaged, not just one thing, but everything, right? All the way along should he have been making different choices should he have been encouraging people in in different ways might that have shifted and changed the entire story of the jewish people and sort of is there ever a time in which it is too late to just do our all hate well, you know and to that building on that point michelle one of the themes of his book is failure 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 all these noble ideas failed Right. The biblical revolution on power, supposed to be a humble king that learns and doesn't arrogate power, failed all the kings, you know, except for Josiah, who ended up being kooky. Uh, and then the religious revolution, you know, Hechal Hashem, Hechal Hashem. Uh, they thought that they, they had the magical view of religion, not, right? So there is, and then Moses himself, you know, failed. So I guess one of the questions as we're, around, as we're ending this, this series is, what do you do with the world? Maybe this is helpful, that there are noble ideals and there's the failure to embody those noble ideals in a lived life in a successful way. And they seem to go hand in hand. I mean, you have the framers of the Constitution, a more perfect union with slavery and three-fifths and uh, et cetera. And to this day, you know, you have white officers shooting poor black people and innocent unarmed black people seven times in the back to this day in 2020. And you have Moses' high ideals failure. So, um, Elise, do you have any wisdom on that? What are you supposed to do with high ideals that don't live out in the world? I think that that's one of the reasons that Judaism and Jewish practice is grounded in action and not in ideas. Right? Like, we do things and then we think about it. We do things and then we understand them. I think, you know, you could even, I was just recently um, looking again at the Kabbalistic story of creation when God tried to fit God's self in these tiny vessels. And when God did, they shattered. When you try to put good ideas or good insights on a shelf or pull them back from the world, that breaks, that can't hold it. Good ideas can't be just ideas, they have to be actions. And so we don't, when we don't implement things, 
it's broken. And so I think Jewish tradition and our world demands that we actualize our ideas, that we can't just think good things, we can't domesticate texts, we have to be out making those a reality. So on that note, let me just close out this series. Most of you have heard, you know, most if not all of Micha's eight lectures here. Um, we've heard the last one. It's Elul. Rosh Hashanah is tomorrow. Yom Kippur is the day after. Um, what difference will Micha's Torah on Moses make in your life? What does it call on you to do? What is its claim on you? you you've given eight, you know, eight nights to this. What, what difference will it make in your life? So I was thinking about the previous question and how that could affect us. Um, you know, Socrates talks about the real and the ideal, and we have the Yerushalayim Shalmala, Yerushalayim Shalmata, um, that living in this world is, as you said many times, Wes, it's like living on the edge of a tightrope. And finding the, we, our, our goal um, is to find the balance between the real, the, the, the ideal and what, what the reality is. And what you said, Michelle, about you know, Moshe, if he had made different decisions, if he had made different decisions, if he had only acted this way, it's just one of those things where um, Moshe, who is who he was, and yes, maybe he changed sometimes, and maybe he didn't change sometimes, but, but the actions that we need to learn to take, I, I still sincerely believe that, that each one of us needs to find really just one thing to to actually be able to make a make a make the world a better place because again if if we try to do it all um as as we saw in the whole book of devarim fail as you just said now failure 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 if we try if each one of us tries one thing i think then that's those actions are the ones that that, that might have the most benefit the most effect if you can change and help and affect the life of one person or a small group of people, that just may be the only thing that we can do. Okay. I'm moved by the way Micha makes pain and, and just deep dysfunction both in our world, in our texts, in our tradition, in the characters that we admire, and somehow finds a way to make them beautiful without being apologetic. And it, hmm. in the sense that you were raising about Scheihel's piece, he doesn't, Micha does not domesticate these texts. He brings out the deep and profound challenges, and yet, in a way that enables us to find beauty in not only the text but in ourselves and and perhaps possibility right it's not we failed all these times and the story's over or moses uh you know didn't talk until too late he he ended tonight with this powerful idea that moses succeeded in getting himself into the land because we're still reading them and because people are still living in the land according to his values, and that gives me hope. Alizi, did you have anything else you wanted to add? I, I was on a very similar wavelength and thinking about the way that, that his whole talks were about Moses was a failure, except that he succeeded, and particularly when you look at the modern Jewish story. Um, and you know, as, a, as an educator, like when the message doesn't come across when you don't see or in your own life or when you don't pick it up on the first time it's a very comforting thought that like generations later it, it might come out in the right way so i'll say i i take two two things away from these um and to me they're both super helpful so i'm really grateful to micha and to, to brian and uh, and david and to amy klein and uh you know for bringing these there's two takeaways that i think are just so important for me and that really land for me one is uh, the nobility of a noble failure. That is okay, we live in such a success-oriented culture. Success, success, success. And you know, usually when you talk to somebody, certainly pre-COVID, less so now, but you know, when somebody says, how are you? The expected answer is never better, I'm fabulous, I'm amazed, it's amazing, fabulous, never better. And that kind of hail fellow well-met energy and the vibe of success and on the make and accomplishing and and that um, that there's a hollowness to that, 
and here our, our greatest leader ever had these ideas and ideals and gave his last strength speaking and failed. Didn't make it to the promised land and also both revolutions didn't work out. And so I think uh, one thing, I, I wanna make sure that I have noble failures. And in that regard, I'm really worried about the shul year. The shul year in COVID, I'm worried a lot about failures. I'm worried a lot about people disconnecting. I'm worried a lot about people saying, you know, Zoom, it's not working for me. And I'm worried a lot about living in a land of um, limbo where what we got is basically Zoom and virtual and where Zoom and virtual are really not connecting with people and where we're losing people. I, I worry every night, I lose sleep every night about failure, about disconnect, about what's gonna happen to this great and beautiful place with the prolongation of COVID-19 and the prolongation of the pandemic. I worry a lot about failure. And this story spoke a lot to me about failure, uh, personally and also communally. Um, but then the other lesson that, you know, and Rich is just so artful about this, and which is the message of try again. That in the end, even Israel, with all of its endless complexity and its political complexity, right? Maybe Israel can be the place where the biblical story tries again and does better, comes closer to the ideal. And even as we embark on our Elul and on our high holidays, individually, collectively, and with our community in this dark season, that we're gonna try again. We're gonna try again. And so it's okay to fail so long as you get up and you try again. That's ultimately, and, and in the end, uh, to your point, Michelle, uh, Moses' books, we're still talking about them all these years later. In the end, he did a pretty good job. Um, and you know, may we take his spirit, it's okay to fail, and his spirit, keep trying, try again, try again. And may we together forge a life of meaning uh, for our community in this time. We want to thank all of you for following with us, and um, Shana Tovah.